1: Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? you tried to... Shalkin the Painter by J. Sheridan Le Published in 1851 For he is not a man as I am that we should come together, Neither is there any that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him, therefore, take his rod away from me, And let not his fear terrify me. There exists, at this moment, in good preservation, a remarkable work of Shalkin's. The curious management of its lights constitutes, as usual in his pieces, the chief apparent merit of the picture. I say apparent, for in its subject and not in its handling, however exquisite, consists its real value. The picture represents the interior of what might be a chamber in some antique religious building and its foreground is occupied by a female figure in a species of white robe, part of which is arranged so as to form a veil. The dress, however, is not that of any religious order. In her hand the figure bears a lamp, by which alone her figure and face are illuminated, and her features wear such an arch smile, as well becomes a pretty woman when practising some prankish roguery in the background. And excepting where the dim red light of an expiring fire serves to define the form, in total shadow stands the figure of a man, dressed in the old Flemish fashion, in an attitude of alarm, his hand being placed upon the hilt of his sword, which he appears to be in the act of drawing." There are some pictures which impress one, I know not how, with a conviction that they represent not the mere ideal shapes and combinations which have floated through the imagination of the artist, but scenes, faces and situations which have actually existed. There is in that strange picture something that stamps it as the representation of a reality. And such in truth it is, for it faithfully records a remarkable and mysterious occurrence, and perpetuates in the face of the female figure which occupies the most prominent place in the design an accurate portrait of Rose Felderkaust, the niece of Gerard Dove, the first and, I believe, the only love of Godfrey Schalken. My great-grandfather knew the painter well, and from Schalken himself he learned the fearful story of the painting. And from him, too, he ultimately received the picture itself as a bequest. The story and the picture have become heirlooms in my family, and having described the latter, I shall, if you please, attempt to relate the tradition which has descended with the canvas. There are few forms on which the mantle of romance hangs more ungracefully than upon that of the uncouth Shalkin, the boorish but most cunning worker in oils whose pieces delight the critics of our day almost as much as his manners disgusted the refined of his own. And yet this man, so rude, so dogged, so slovenly, in the midst of his celebrity, had in his obscure but happier days, played the hero in a wild romance of mystery and passion. When Schalkin studied under the immortal Gerard Duve, he was a very young man, and in spite of his phlegmatic temperament, he at once fell over head and ears in love with the beautiful niece of his wealthy master. Rose Felderkaust was still younger than he, having not yet attained her seventeenth year, and, if tradition speaks truth, possessed all the soft and dimpling charms of the fair, light-haired Flemish maidens. The young painter loved honestly and fervently. His frank adoration was rewarded, he declared his love, and extracted a faltering confession in return. He was the happiest and proudest painter in all Christendom. But there was something to dash his elation. He was poor and undistinguished. He dared not ask old Gerard for the hand of his sweet ward. He must first win a reputation and a competence.' There were, therefore, many dread uncertainties and cold days before him. He had to fight his way against sore odds, but he had won the heart of dear Rose Felderkaust, and that was half the battle. It is needless to say his exertions were redoubled, and his lasting celebrity proves that his industry was not unrewarded by success. These ardent labours, and worse still, the hopes that elevated and beguiled them, were, however, destined to experience a sudden interruption of a character so strange and mysterious as to baffle all inquiry and to throw over the events themselves a shadow of preternatural horror. Shalkin had one evening outstayed all his fellow pupils and still pursued his work in the deserted room. As the daylight was fast failing, he laid aside his colours and applied himself to the completion of a sketch on which he had expressed extraordinary pains. It was a religious composition, and represented the temptations of a pot-bellied St. Anthony. The young artist, however destitute of elevation, had, nevertheless, discernment enough to be satisfied with his own work, and many were the patient erasures and improvements which saint and devil underwent, yet all in vain— The large, old-fashioned room was silent and, with the exception of himself, quite emptied of its usual inmates. An hour had thus passed away, nearly two, without any improved result. Daylight had already declined and twilight was deepening into the darkness of night. The patience of the young painter was exhausted, and he stood before his unfinished production angry and mortified, one hand buried in the folds of his long hair, and the other holding the piece of charcoal which had so ill-performed its office, and which he now rubbed without much regard to the sable streaks it produced with irritable pressure upon his ample Flemish inexpressibles. Curse the subject, said the young man aloud. Curse the picture! The devil's the saint! At this moment a short, sudden sniff, uttered close beside him, made the artist turn sharply round, and he now, for the first time, became aware that his labours had been overlooked by a stranger. Within about a yard and a half, and rather behind him, there stood the figure of an elderly man in a cloak and broad-brimmed conical hat. In his hand, which was protected with a heavy gauntlet-shaped glove, he carried a long ebony walking-stick, surmounted with what appeared, as it glittered dimly in the twilight, to be a massive head of gold, and upon his breast, through the folds of the cloak, There shone the links of a rich chain of the same metal. The room was so obscure that nothing further of the appearance of the figure could be ascertained, and his hat threw his features into profound shadow. It would not have been easy to conjecture the age of the intruder, but a quantity of dark hair escaping from beneath this sombre hat, as well as his firm and upright carriage, served to indicate that his years could not yet exceed three score or thereabouts. There was an air of gravity and importance about the garb of the person, and something indescribably odd—I might say awful—in the perfect stone-like stillness of the figure, that effectually checked the testy comment which had at once risen to the lips of the irritated artist. He, therefore, as soon as he had sufficiently recovered his surprise, asked the stranger civilly to be seated— and desired to know if he had any message to leave for his master. "'Tell Gerard Dove,' said the unknown, without altering his attitude in the smallest degree, "'that Mynheer van der Hausen of Rotterdam "'desires to speak with him on to-morrow evening at this hour, "'and if he please in this room, upon matters of weight, that is all.' "'The stranger, having finished this message, "'turned abruptly and with a quick but silent step quitted the room.' before Schalkin had time to say a word in reply. The young man felt a curiosity to see in what direction the burgher of Rotterdam would turn on quitting the studio, and for that purpose he went directly to the window which commanded the door. A lobby of considerable extent intervened between the inner door of the painter's room and the street entrance, so that Schalkin occupied the post of observation before the old man could possibly have reached the street. He watched in vain, however. There was no other mode of exit. Had the queer old man vanished, or was he lurking about in the recesses of the lobby for some sinister purpose? This last suggestion filled the mind of Shalkin with a vague uneasiness, which was so unaccountably intense as to make him alike afraid to remain in the room alone and reluctant to pass through the lobby. However with an effort which appeared very disproportioned to the occasion he summoned resolution to leave the room and having locked the door and thrust the key in his pocket without looking to the right or left he traversed the passage which had so recently perhaps still contained the person of this mysterious visitant scarcely venturing to breathe till he had arrived in the open street "I am here van der hausen" said Gerardo within himself as the appointed hour approached heer van der Hausen of Rotterdam. I never heard of the man till yesterday. What can he want of me? A, a portrait, perhaps, to be painted, or a poor relation to be apprenticed, or a collection to be valued, or, pshaw, there's no one in Rotterdam to leave me a legacy. Well, whatever the business may be, we shall soon know it all. It was now the close of day, and again every easel except that of Schalken was deserted. Gerard Doe was pacing the apartment with the restless step of impatient expectation, sometimes pausing to glance over the work of one of his absent pupils, but more frequently placing himself at the window, from whence he might observe the passengers who threaded the obscure by-street in which his studio was placed. "'Said you not, Godfrey?' exclaimed Doe, after a long and fruitful gaze from his post of observation, and turning to Shalkin. "'that the hour he appointed was about seven by the clock of the start house. It "'He had just told seven when I first saw him, sir,' answered the student. "'The hour is close at hand, then,' said the master, "'consulting an orologe as large and as round as an orange. "'Menhir van der Housen from Rotterdam. "'Is it not so?' "'Such was the name.' "'And an elderly man, richly clad,' pursued Doe musingly. "'As well as I might see,' replied his pupil.' He could not be young, nor yet very old, neither, and his dress was rich and grave, as might become a citizen of wealth and consideration. At this moment the sonorous boom of the start-house clock tolled, stroke after stroke, the hour of seven. The eyes of both master and student were directed to the door, and it was not until the last peal of the bell had ceased to vibrate that Doe exclaimed— so, so, we shall have his worship presently, uh, that is, if he means to keep his hour. If not, uh, you may wait for him, Godfrey, if you caught his acquaintance. But what, after all, if it should prove but a mummery got up by Fancarpo or some such wag? I wish you had run all risks and cudgeled the old burgomaster soundly. I'd wager a dozen of Rhenish his worship would have unmasked and pleaded old acquaintance in a trice. Uh, here he comes, sir said Schalkin, in a low, monitory tone, and instantly, upon turning towards the door, Gerard Doe observed the same figure which had, on the day before, so unexpectedly greeted his pupil Shalkin. There was something in the air of the figure which at once satisfied the painter that there was no masquerading in the case, and that he really stood in the presence of a man of worship, and so, without hesitation, he doffed his cap— and courteously saluting the stranger, requested him to be seated. The visitor waved his hand slightly, as if in acknowledgment of the courtesy, but remained standing. "I have the honour to see him in here, van here, Vanderhausen of Rotterdam," said Gerard Dow. "The same," was the laconic reply of his visitor. "I understand your worship desires to speak with me," continued Dow, "and I am here by appointment to wait your commands." Is that a man of trust? said van der Housen, turning towards Schalken, who stood at a little distance behind his master. Uh, certainly, replied Gerard. Then let him take this box and get the nearest jeweller or goldsmith to value its contents, and let him return hither with the certificate of the valuation. At the same time he placed a small case, about nine inches square, in the hands of Gerard, though, who was as much amazed at its weight as at the strange abruptness with which it was handed to him. In accordance with the wishes of the stranger, he delivered it into the hands of Shalkin, and repeating his direction, dispatched him on the mission. Shalkin disposed his precious charge securely beneath the folds of his cloak, and rapidly traversing two or three narrow streets, he stopped at a corner house, the lower part of which was then occupied by the shop of a Jewish goldsmith, he entered the shop, and calling the little Hebrew into the obscurity of its back recesses, he proceeded to lay before him van der casket. On being examined by the light of a lamp, it appeared entirely cased with lead, the outer surface of which was much scraped and soiled and nearly white with age. This having been partially removed, there appeared beneath a box of some hard wood, which also they forced open, and after the removal of two or three folds of linen— they discovered its contents to be a mass of golden ingots, closely packed and, as the Jew declared, of the most perfect quality. Every ingot underwent the scrutiny of the little Jew who seemed to feel an epicurean delight in touching and testing these morsels of the glorious metal, and each one of them was replaced in its berth with the exclamation, My gods, how very perfect! Not one grain of alloy, beautiful! Beautiful. The task was at length finished, and the Jew certified under his hand the value of the ingots submitted to his examination to amount to many thousand rix-dollars. With the desired document in his pocket and the rich box of gold carefully pressed under his arm and concealed by his cloak, he retraced his way, and entering the studio found his master and the stranger in close conference. Schalkin had no sooner left the room in order to execute the commission he had taken in charge than Vanderhausen addressed Gerard Doe in the following terms. I cannot tarry with you to-night more than a few minutes, and so I shall shortly tell you the matter upon which I come. You visited the town of Rotterdam some four months ago, and then I saw in the church of St. Lawrence your niece, Rose Felderkaust, I desire to marry her, and if I satisfy you that I am wealthier than any husband you can dream of for her, I expect that you will forward my suit with your authority. If you approve my proposal, you must close with it here and now, for I cannot wait for calculations and delays. Gerardo was hugely astonished by the nature of Mynheer van der Housen's communication, but he did not venture to express surprise. For, besides the motives supplied by prudence and politeness, the painter experienced a kind of chill and oppression, like that which is said to intervene when one is placed in unconscious proximity with the object of a natural antipathy, an undefined but overpowering sensation, while standing in the presence of the eccentric stranger, which made him very unwilling to say anything. "'which might reasonably offend him. "'I have no doubt,' said Gerard, "'after two or three prefatory hems, "'that the alliance which you propose "'would prove alike advantageous "'and honourable to my niece. "'But you must be aware "'that she has a will of her own "'and may not acquiesce "'in what we may design for her advantage. "'Do not seek to deceive me, Sir painter," "'said Van der "'You are her guardian.' She is your ward. She is mine. If you like to make her so. the man of Rotterdam moved forward a little as he spoke, and Gerard Do he scarce knew why inwardly prayed for the speedy return of Shulkin. I desire, said the mysterious gentleman to place in your hands at once an evidence of my wealth and a security for my liberal dealing with your niece. The lad will return in a minute or two with a sum in value five times the fortune which she has a right to expect from her husband. This shall lie in your hands together with her dowry, and you may apply the united sum as suits her interest best. It shall be all exclusively hers while she lives. Is that liberal?' Dow assented and inwardly acknowledged that fortune had been extraordinarily kind to his niece. The stranger, he thought, must be both wealthy and generous, and such an offer was not to be despised, though made by a humorist and one of no very prepossessing presence. Rose had no very high pretensions, for she had but a modest dowry, which she owed entirely to the generosity of her uncle. Neither had she any right to raise exceptions on the score of birth for her own origin was far from splendid, and, as the other objections, Gerard resolved, and indeed, by the usages of the time, was warranted in resolving not to listen to them for a moment. "'Sir,' he said, addressing the stranger, "'your your offer is liberal, and whatever hesitation I may feel in closing with it immediately arises solely from my not having the honour of knowing anything of your family or station.' Upon these points you can, of course, satisfy me without difficulty. As to my respectability, said the stranger dryly, you must take that for granted at present. Pester me with no inquiries. You can discover nothing more about me than I choose to make known. You shall have sufficient security for my respectability, my word, if you are honourable, if you are sordid, my gold. A testy, old gentleman, thought though, He must have his own way, but all things considered, I am not justified to declining his offer. I will not pledge myself unnecessarily, however. You will not pledge yourself unnecessarily, said Vanderhausen, strangely uttering the very words which had just floated through the mind of his companion. But you will do so if it is necessary, I presume, and I will show you that I consider it indispensable. If the gold I mean to leave in your hands satisfy you, and if you don't wish my proposal to be at once withdrawn, you must, before I leave this room, write your name to this engagement. Having thus spoken, he placed a paper in the hands of the master, the contents of which expressed an engagement entered into by Gerard Do to give Wilken van der Hausen of Rotterdam, in marriage Rose Felderkaust, and so forth, within one week of the date thereof. While the painter was employed in reading this covenant by the light of a twinkling oil lamp in the far wall of the room, Schalken, as we have stated, entered the studio, and having delivered the box and the valuation of the Jew into the hands of the stranger, he was about to retire, when Vanderhausen called to him to wait, and presenting the case and the certificate to Gerard Dow, he paused in silence until he had satisfied himself by an inspection of both, respecting the value of the pledge left in his hands. At length he said, Are you content? The painter said he would fain have another day to consider. Not an hour, said the suitor apathetically. Well then, said Du, with a sore effort, I am content. It is a bargain. Then sign at once, said Van der Housen, for I am weary. At the same time he produced a small case of writing materials, and Gerard signed the important document. Let this youth witness the covenant, said the old man, and Godfrey Schalken unconsciously attested the instrument which for ever bereft him of his dear Rose Felderkhaust. The compact being thus completed, the strange visitor folded up the paper and stowed it safely in an inner pocket. I will visit you tomorrow night at nine o'clock at your own house, Gerard and will see the object of our contract. And so saying, Wilkin Vanderhausen moved stiffly but rapidly out of the room. Shalkin, eager to resolve his doubts, had placed himself by the window in order to watch the street entrance. But the experiment served only to support his suspicions, for the old man did not issue from the door. This was very strange, odd, nay, fearful. He and his master returned together and talked but little on the way, for each had his own subject of reflection, of anxiety, and of hope. Schalken, however, did not know the ruin which menaced his dearest projects. Gerardou knew nothing of the attachment which had sprung up between his pupil and his niece, and even if he had, it's doubtful whether he would have regarded its existence as any serious obstruction to the wishes of Minhir van der Häusen. Marriages were then and there matters of traffic and calculation— and it would have appeared as absurd in the eyes of the guardian to make a mutual attachment, an essential element in a contract of the sort, as it would have been to draw up his bonds and receipts in the language of romance. The painter, however, did not communicate to his niece the important step which he had taken in her behalf, a forbearance caused not by any anticipated opposition on her part, but solely by a ludicrous consciousness that if she were to ask him for a description of her destined bridegroom, he would be forced to confess that he had not once seen his face, and if called upon would find it absolutely impossible to identify him. Upon the next day, Gerard after dinner, called his niece to him, and having scanned her person with an air of satisfaction, he took her hand, and looking upon her pretty innocent face with a smile of kindness, he said, Rose, my girl, that face of yours will make your fortune. Rose blushed and smiled. Such faces and such tempers seldom go together, and when they do, the compound is a love-charm few heads or hearts can resist. Trust me, you'll soon be a bride-girl, but this is trifling, and I am pressed for time, so make ready the large room by eight o'clock tonight, and give directions for supper at nine. I expect a friend, and observe me, child. Do trick yourself out handsomely.' I won't have him think us poor or sluttish. With these words, he left her, and took his way to the room in which his pupils worked. When the evening closed in, Gerard called Shalkin, who was about to take his departure to his own obscure and comfortless lodgings, and asked him to come home and sup with Rose and van der The invitation was of course accepted, and Gerard Dow and his pupils soon found themselves in the handsome and even then antique chamber which had been prepared for the reception of the stranger. A cheerful wood fire blazed in the hearth, a little at one side of which an old-fashioned table, which shone in the firelight like burnished gold, was awaiting the supper, for which preparations were going forward, and ranged with exact regularity stood the tall-backed chairs, whose ungracefulness was more than compensated by their comfort. The little party, consisting of Rose, her uncle, and the artist, awaited the arrival of the expected visitor with considerable impatience. Nine o'clock at length came, and with it a summons at the street door, which, being speedily answered, was followed by a slow and emphatic tread upon the staircase. The steps moved heavily across the lobby. The door of the room in which the party we have described were assembled slowly opened, and there entered a figure which startled, almost appalled the phlegmatic Dutchman, and nearly made Rose scream with terror. It was the form and arrayed in the garb of Menheer van der Hausen, The air, the gait, the height were the same, but the features had never been seen by face completely. The stranger stopped at the door of the room and displayed his form and face completely, He wore a dark-coloured cloth cloak, which was short and full, not falling quite to his knees. His legs were cased in dark purple silk stockings, and his shoes were adorned with roses of the same colour. The opening of the cloak in front showed the undersuit to consist of some very dark, uh, perhaps sable, material, and his hands were enclosed in a heavy pair of leather gloves, which ran up considerably above the wrist, in the manner of a gauntlet, in one hand he carried his walking stick and his hat, which he had removed, and the other hung heavily by his side. A quantity of grizzled hair descended in long tresses from his head and rested upon the plates of a stiff ruff which effectually concealed his neck. So far all was well. But the face all the flesh of the face was coloured with the bluish leaden hue which is sometimes produced by metallic medicines administered in excessive quantities. The eyes showed an undue proportion of muddy white and had a certain indefinable character of insanity. The hue of the lips bearing the usual relation to that of the face was consequently nearly black, and the entire character of the face was sensual, malignant, and even satanic. It was remarkable that the worshipful stranger suffered as little as possible of his flesh to appear, and that during his visit he did not once remove his gloves. Having stood for some moments at the door, Gerard Dow at length found breadth and collectedness to bid him welcome, and with a mute inclination of the head the stranger stepped forward into the room. There was something indescribably odd, even horrible, about all his motions, something undefinable, that was unnatural, inhuman it was as if the limbs were guided and directed by a spirit unused to the management of bodily machinery. The stranger spoke hardly at all during his visit, which did not exceed half an hour, and the host himself could scarcely muster courage enough to utter the few necessary salutations and courtesies, and indeed, such was the nervous terror which the presence of Vanderhausen inspired, that very little would have made all these entertainers fly in downright panic from the room. They had not so far lost all self-possession, however, as to fail to observe two strange peculiarities of their visitor. During his stay his eyelids did not once close, or indeed move in the slightest degree, and farther there was a death-like stillness in his whole person, owing to the absence of the heaving motion of the chest caused by the process of respiration. These two peculiarities, though when told they may appear trifling, produced a very striking and unpleasant effect when seen and observed. Vanderhausen at length relieved the painter of Leyden of his inauspicious presence, and with no trifling sense of relief the little party heard the street door close after him. Dear uncle, said Rose, what a frightful man! I would not see him again for all the wealth of the States. Tush, foolish girl, said Doe, whose sensations were anything but comfortable. A man may be as ugly as the devil, and yet, if his heart and actions are good, he is worth all the pretty-faced perfumed puppies that walk the mall. Rose, my girl, it's very true. He has not thy pretty face, but I know him to be wealthy and liberal And were he ten times more ugly, these two virtues would be enough to counterbalance all his deformity, and if not sufficient, actually to alter the shape and hue of his features at least enough to prevent one thinking them so much amiss. "'Do you know, Uncle,' said Rose, "'when I saw him standing at the door, I I couldn't get it out of my head that I saw the old painted wooden figure that used to frighten me so much in the Church of St. Lawrence at Rotterdam.' Gerard laughed, though he could not help inwardly acknowledging the justness of the comparison. He was resolved, however, as far as he could, to check his niece's disposition to dilate upon the ugliness of her intended bridegroom, though he was not a little pleased, as well as puzzled, to observe that she appeared totally exempt from that mysterious dread of the stranger which, he could not disguise it from himself, considerably affected him as also his pupil Godfrey Schalken. Early on the next day there arrived from various quarters of the town rich presents of silks, velvets, jewellery and so forth for Rose, and also a packet directed to Gerard Dow, which, upon being opened, was found to contain a contract of marriage formerly drawn up between Wilkin Vanderhausen of the Boom Quay in Rotterdam and Rose Felderkaust of Leyden, niece to Gerard Do, master in the art of painting, also of the same city, and containing engagements on the part of Vanderhausen to make settlements upon his bride, far more splendid than he had before led her guardian to believe likely, and which were to be secured to her use in the most unexceptionable manner possible, the money being placed in the hand of Gerard Do himself. I have no sentimental scenes to describe, no cruelty of guardians, no magnanimity of wards, no agonies or transport of lovers. The record I have to make is one of sordidness, levity, and heartlessness. In less than a week after the first interview, which we have just described, the contract of marriage was fulfilled, and Schalken saw the prize which he would have risked existence to secure, carried off in solemn pomp by his repulsive rival. For two or three days he absented himself from the school, He then returned and worked, if, with less cheerfulness, with far more dogged resolution than before. The stimulus of love had given place to that of ambition. Months passed away, and contrary to his expectation, and indeed to the direct promise of the parties, Gerard Dow heard nothing of his niece or her worshipful spouse. The interest of the money, which was to have been demanded in quarterly sums, lay unclaimed in his hands. He began to grow extremely uneasy. Mynheer van der Housen's direction in Rotterdam he was fully possessed of. After some irresolution he finally determined to journey thither, a trifling undertaking and easily accomplished, and thus to satisfy himself of the safety and the comfort of his ward, for whom he entertained an honest and strong affection. His search was in vain, however. No one in Rotterdam had ever heard of Mynheer van der Housen. Gerard Dow left not a house in the boom quay untried, but all in vain. No one could give him any information whatever touching the object of his inquiry, and he was obliged to return to Leyden, nothing wiser and far more anxious than when he had left it. On his arrival he hastened to the establishment from which Vanderhausen had hired a lumbering, though considering the time's most luxurious vehicle— which the bridal party had employed to convey them to Rotterdam from the driver of this machine he learned that, having proceeded by slow stages, they had late in the evening approached Rotterdam, but that before they entered the city and while yet nearly a mile from it, a small party of men, soberly clad and after the old fashion, peaked beards and moustaches standing in the centre of the road, obstructed the further progress of the carriage. The driver reined in his horses, much fearing from the obscurity of the hour and the loneliness of the road, that some mischief was intended. His fears were, however, somewhat allayed by his observing that these strange men carried a large litter of an antique shape, and which they immediately set down upon the pavement, whereupon the bridegroom, having opened the coach-door from within, descended, and having assisted his bride to do likewise, led her weeping bitterly and wringing her hands to the litter which they both entered. It was then raised by the men who surrounded it and speedily carried towards the city, and before it had proceeded very far the darkness concealed it from the view of the Dutch coachman. In the inside of the vehicle he found a purse whose contents more than thrice paid the hire of the carriage and man. He saw and could tell nothing more of Mynheer van der Housen. And his beautiful lady. This mystery was a source of profound anxiety and even grief to Gerardo. There was evidently fraud in the dealing of Vanderhausen with him, though for what purpose committed he could not imagine. He greatly doubted how far it was possible for a man possessing such a countenance to be anything but a villain. And every day that passed without his hearing from or of his niece, instead of inducing him to forget his fears on the contrary, tended more and more to aggravate them. The loss of her cheerful society tended also to depress his spirits, and in order to dispel the gloom which often crept upon his mind after his daily occupations were over, he was wont frequently to ask Shalkin to accompany him home and share his otherwise solitary supper. One evening the painter and his pupil were sitting by the fire, having accomplished a comfortable meal— and had yielded to the silent and delicious melancholy of digestion when their ruminations were disturbed by a loud sound at the street door as if occasioned by some person rushing and scrambling vehemently against it. A domestic had run without delay to ascertain the cause of the disturbance, and they heard him twice or thrice interrogate the applicant for admission, but without eliciting any other answer but a sustained reiteration of the sounds. They heard him then open the hall door, and immediately there followed a light and rapid tread on the staircase. Shalkin advanced towards the door, it opened before he reached it, and Rose rushed into the room. She looked wild, fierce and haggard with terror and exhaustion, but her dress surprised them as much as even her unexpected appearance. It consisted of a kind of a white woollen wrapper, made close about the neck and descending to the very ground. It was much deranged and travel-soiled. The poor creature had hardly entered the chamber when she fell senseless on the floor. With some difficulty they succeeded in reviving her, and on recovering her senses she instantly exclaimed in a tone of terror rather than mere impatience, Wine, wine, quickly, or I'm lost! Astonished and almost scared at the strange agitation in which the call was made, they at once administered to her wishes, and she drank some wine with a haste and eagerness which surprised them. She had hardly swallowed it when she exclaimed with the same urgency, Food! For God's sake, food! At once! Or I perish! A considerable fragment of a roasted joint was laid upon the table, and Shalkin immediately began to cut some, but he was anticipated, for no sooner did she see it than she caught it, a more than mortal image of famine, and with her hands, and even with her teeth, she tore off the flesh and swallowed it. When the paroxysm of hunger had been a little appeased, she appeared on a sudden overcome with shame, or it may have been that other more agitating thoughts overpowered and scared her, for she began to weep bitterly and to wring her hands. "'Oh, send for a minister of God,' she said. "'I am not safe till he comes. Send for him speedily.' Gerard Dove dispatched the messenger instantly and prevailed on his niece to allow him to surrender his bedchamber to her use. He also persuaded her to retire to it at once to rest. Her consent was extorted upon the condition that they would not leave her for a moment. "'Oh, that the holy man were here,' she said. "'He can deliver me. "'The dead and the living can never be one. "'God has forbidden it.' With these mysterious words she surrendered herself to their guidance, and they proceeded to the chamber which Gerard Dow had assigned to her use. "'Do not do not leave me for a moment,' said she. "'I am lost for ever if you do.' Gerard Doe's chamber was approached through a spacious apartment, which they were now about to enter. He and Shalkin each carried a candle, so that a sufficiency of light was cast upon all surrounding objects. They were now entering the large chamber, which, as I have said, communicated with Doe's apartment, when Rose suddenly stopped. And in a whisper, which thrilled them both with horror, she said, "'Oh, God!' He is here. He is here. See, see, there he goes. She pointed towards the door of the inner room, and Schalken thought he saw a shadowy and ill-defined form gliding into that apartment. He drew his sword, and raising the candle so as to throw its light with increased distinctness upon the objects in the room, he entered the chamber into which the shadow had glided. No figure was there. Nothing but the furniture which belonged to the room. And yet he could not be deceived as to the fact that something had moved before them into the chamber. A sickening dread came upon him, and the cold perspiration broke out in heavy drops upon his forehead. Nor was he more composed when he heard the increased urgency and agony of entreaty with which Rose implored them not to leave her for a moment. I saw him, said she. He's here. I cannot be deceived. I know him. He's by me. He's with me. He's in the room. Then, for God's sake, as you would save me, do not stir from beside me. They at length prevailed upon her to lie down upon the bed, where she continued to urge them to stay by her she frequently uttered incoherent sentences, repeating again and again, the dead and the living cannot be one, God has forbidden it, then again, rest to the wakeful, sleep to the sleepwalkers. These and other such mysterious and broken sentences she continued to utter until the clergyman arrived. Gerard Dow began to fear, naturally enough, that terror or ill-treatment had unsettled the poor girl's intellect, and he half-suspected, by the suddenness of her appearance, the unseasonableness of the hour, and above all from the wildness and terror of her manner, that she had made her escape from some place of confinement for lunatics, and was in imminent fear of pursuit. He resolved to summon medical advice as soon as the mind of his niece had been in some measure set at rest by the offices of the clergyman, whose attendance she had so earnestly desired. And until this object had been attained, he did not venture to put any questions to her, which might, possibly, by reviving painful or horrible recollections, increase her agitation. The clergyman soon arrived, a man of ascetic countenance and venerable age, one whom Gerard respected very much, forasmuch as he was a veteran polemic, though one perhaps more dreaded as a combatant than beloved as a Christian, of pure morality, subtle brain and frozen heart, he entered the chamber which communicated with that in which Rose reclined, and immediately on his arrival she requested him to pray for her, as for one who lay in the hands of Satan, and who could hope for deliverance only from heaven. That you may distinctly understand all the circumstances of the event which I am going to describe. It is necessary to state the relative position of the parties who were engaged in it. The old clergyman and Shalkin were in the ante-room of which I have already spoken. Rose lay in the inner chamber, the door of which was open, and by the side of the bed at her urgent desire stood her guardian. A candle burned in the bedchamber, and three were lighted in the outer apartment. The old man now cleared his voice, as if about to commence. But before he had time to begin, a sudden gust of air blew out the candle, which served to illuminate the room in which the poor girl lay. And she, with hurried alarm, exclaimed, Godfrey, bring in another candle. The darkness is unsafe. Gerard, though, forgetting for the moment her repeated injunctions in the immediate impulse, stepped from the bedchamber into the other in order to supply what she desired. Oh, God, do not go, dear uncle, shrieked the unhappy girl. And at the same time she sprung from the bed and darted after him in order by her grasp to detain him. But the warning came too late for scarcely had he passed the threshold and hardly had his niece had time to utter the startling exclamation when the door, which divided the two rooms, closed violently after him, as if swung by a strong blast of wind. Shalkin and he both rushed to the door, but their united and desperate efforts could not avail so much as to shake it. Shriek after shriek burst from the inner chamber, with all the piercing loudness of despairing terror. Shalkin and Doe applied every nerve to force open the door, but all in vain. There was no sound of struggling from within, but the screams seemed to increase in loudness, and at the same time they heard the bolts of the latticed window withdrawn, and the window itself grated upon the sill, as if thrown open. One last shriek, so long and piercing and agonised as to be scarcely human, swelled from the room, and suddenly there followed a death-like silence. A light step was heard crossing the room, as if from the bed to the window, and almost at the same instant the door gave way, and yielding to the pressure of the external applicants nearly precipitated them into the room. It was empty. The window was open and Shalkin sprung to a chair and gazed out upon the street and canal below. He saw no form, but he saw, or thought he saw, the waters of the broad canal beneath settling ring after ring in heavy circles, as if a moment before disturbed by the submission of some ponderous body. No trace of Rose was ever after found, nor was anything certain respecting her mysterious wooer discovered, or even suspected. No clue whereby to trace the intricacies of the labyrinth and to arrive at its solution presented itself. But an incident occurred which, though it will not be received by our rational readers in lieu of evidence, produced nevertheless a strong and a lasting impression upon the mind of Shalkin. Many years after the events which we have detailed, Shalkin, then residing far away, received an intimation of his father's death and of his intended burial upon a fixed day in the church of Rotterdam. It was necessary that a very considerable journey should be performed by the funeral procession, which, as it will be readily believed, was not very numerously attended. Schalken with difficulty arrived in Rotterdam late in the day upon which the funeral was appointed to take place. It had not then arrived. Evening closed in and still it did not appear. Shalkin strolled down to the church. He found it open. Notice of the arrival of the funeral had been given, and the vault in which the body was to be laid had been opened. The sexton, on seeing a well-dressed gentleman whose object was to attend the expected obsequies pacing the aisle of the church, hospitably invited him to share with him the comforts of a blazing fire, which, as was his custom in winter time upon such occasions, "'he had kindled in the hearth of a chamber "'in which he was accustomed to await the arrival "'of such grisly guests, "'and which communicated by a flight of steps "'with the vault below. "'In this chamber Shalkin and his entertainer "'seated themselves, "'and the sexton, after some fruitless attempts "'to engage his guest in conversation, "'was obliged to apply himself to his tobacco-pipe "'and can to solace his solitude. "'In spite of his grief and cares,' The fatigues of a rapid journey of nearly forty hours gradually overcame the mind and body of Godfrey Shalkin, and he sank into a deep sleep, from which he awakened by someone shaking him gently by the shoulder. He first thought that the old sexton had called him, but he was no longer in the room. He roused himself, and as soon as he could clearly see what was around him, he perceived a female form, clothed in a kind of light robe of white, "'part of which was so disposed as to form a veil, "'and in her hand she carried a lamp. "'She was moving rather away from him "'in the direction of a flight of steps "'which conducted towards the vaults. "'Shalkin felt a vague alarm at the sight of this figure "'and at the same time an irresistible impulse "'to follow its guidance. "'He followed it towards the vaults, "'but when it reached the head of the stairs he paused. "'The figure paused also.' and turning gently round, displayed by the light of the lamp it carried, the face and features of his first love, Rose Felderkost. There was nothing horrible or even sad in the countenance. On the contrary, it wore the same arch smile which used to enchant the artist long before in his happy days. A feeling of awe and interest, too intense to be resisted, prompted him to follow the spectre, if spectre it were. She descended the stairs, he followed, and turning to the left, through a narrow passage, she led him, to his infinite surprise, into what appeared to be an old-fashioned Dutch apartment, such as the pictures of Gerard Dow have served to immortalize. Abundance of costly antique furniture was disposed about the room, and in one corner stood a four-post bed, with heavy black cloth curtains around it. The figure frequently turned towards him with the same arch smile, and when she came to the side of the bed, she drew the curtains, and by the light of the lamp which she held towards its contents, she disclosed to the horror-stricken painter, sitting bolt upright in the bed, the livid and demoniac form of Vanderhausen. Schalken had hardly seen him when he fell senseless upon the floor, where he lay until discovered on the next morning by persons employed in closing the passages into the vaults. He was lying in a cell of considerable size, which had not been disturbed for a long time. He had fallen beside a large coffin, which was supported upon small pillars, a security against the attacks of vermin. To his dying day, Shalkin was satisfied of the reality of the vision which he had witnessed, and he has left behind him a curious evidence of the impression which it wrought upon his fancy, in a painting executed shortly after the event I have narrated, and which is valuable as exhibiting not only the peculiarities which have made Schalken's pictures sought after, but even more so as presenting a portrait of his early love Rose Felderkaust, whose mysterious fate must always remain a matter of speculation.' Isn't that so? You tried to get into the so that was Shalkin the Painter by J. Joseph Sheridan-Lafanu. And I've been doing a run of sheridan LaFarno stories recently. I did Madame Crowell's Ghost not long ago. Did some, uh, an account of some strange dis- disturbances on Angers Street last week. I've done Carmilla, of course. I've done Green Tea. Um, I've done, oh yeah, what's her name, Silver Bell. I uh, can't remember that one, but the, but the girl does a deal with the devil. So I'm a bit of a fan, really. Anyway, let me tell you something about him. He was Irish-born in uh, on 28th of August 1814 in Dublin, one of the leading exponents of the Victorian ghost story, very much admired by later writers such as M.R. James and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Um, he, he came from a literary family. His father was a clergyman. His great-uncle um, Richard Brinsley was born in Dublin in 1751. He fought some duels um, against a a man who defamed the honour of his... And he's very interesting in himself. So what happens with these things, you get down the rabbit hole now. I was uh, reading an interesting article about the use of the phrase, the rabbit hole. So, of course, it's first used as per um, Alice in Wonderland, whereby it, it means going somewhere very strange. But what it's come to mean is, these days, I went down a rabbit hole. Just means you get lost in a labyrinth of things. It isn't necessarily a wonderland or a strange thing, and the, and the meaning has mutated. And I mean it by the second. So Richard Brinsley is worth an episode in his own right, but I didn't. He didn't write this story. He's his great nephew did, Joseph Sheridan. They were of Huguenot stock, I think. Lefano, hence the uh, French style name, and obviously the Huguenots were French Protestants who fled persecution. Um, because of the Catholic king of France wanted to kill them all. Um, yeah, this is what happens. People want to kill people because they're different. I, I don't get it myself. Mainly, I just want to kill people um, who give me parking tickets um, and nothing to do with their religion. I don't care. Um, or where they come from. So, anyway, so um, so back to Joseph. He initially studied law at Trinity College, but his passion for literature led him to pursue a career in writing. He began by contributing to the various Dublin newspapers and magazines. He gained recognition for his tales of mystery and the supernatural, often exploring themes of horror, the occult and psychological suspense. His works were heavily influenced by Gothic literature and German romanticism. Famous books, Carmilla, 1872. We did um, Angus Street, and that was... He published it again under under another name, and... um, it was kind of Bram Stoker, who worked for him later, borrowed a lot from Carmilla for Dracula, but also wrote a story called The Judge's House, which is a, a pretty much straight borrowing, or not a straight borrowing, but a very close borrowing from the disturbances on Angers Street. So, you know, he, he was quite young when he died, uh, 1873. His wife died uh, which when, when she was quite young, and it, he never really recovered from it. So he joined the staff of the Dublin University Magazine and became proprietor and editor in 1861. And, and um, Bram Stoker worked for him briefly there. In later years, I believe that's true. So he's only 58. He's buried at Mount Jerome Cemetery in Dublin. If you ever want to go and see him, I think I might go and see him next time I'm in Dublin. It turns out when he originally published it, um, it was called "Strange Event in the Life of Shalkin the Painter," being a seventh extract from the Legacy. Of the late Francis Purcell, P.P. of Drum Cooler in Dublin University Magazine, May eighteen thirty nine, and then he he um, it, the original version was reprinted. This original version was reprinted after Lefana's death in the Purcell Papers, but the the um he revised the tale before he died clearly, uh, and called it Just Shalkin the Painter, uh, in his collection c- collection Ghost Stories and Tales of Mystery. It published Dublin by McGlashan in 1851. It was illustrated by his son, George Brinsley Sheridan Lafano For those that didn't know, um, the, the original quote, the first quote that introduces it is from Job 9, verses 32 to 35. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him. That we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me. Let him and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Obviously, I believe Job's talking about God there, but um, he's talking about the monstrous uh, Vanderhausen. There's a lot of uh, the Vanderhausen and what she called the the yeah the, uh, the, the names. Uh, Rose's second name is very um, similar to my mind. Not if you're not if you're a Dutch speaker, I suppose. I did learn a bit of Dutch once. Um and some Afrikaans actually. Um but there we are. It's another story. So yeah, Schalken was a real he was a real dude. Uh, Gottfried Schalken was a real man. Uh, born 1643 and died 1706 was a Dutch genre and portrait painter. He was noted for his mastery in re- reproducing the effect of candlelight and painted in the exquisite and highly punished manner of the Leiden Feinschilders. He was born in North Brabant. Uh, before and then he, before he's 4 years old his family moved to Dordrecht where his father became a rector of the latin school he studied under Samuel van Hoogstraten in Dordrecht before he moved to Leiden in the stu- in the studio of Gerard Doe. there you go one of rembrandt's most famous pupils so um there you go so it's a real real thing his subject of Schalken's, the real Shalkins subjects were frequently women surrounded by shadow, their hands and faces dimly illuminated by the candles they carry, eyes speaking wryly of unspoken thoughts, smiles twisted in suggestive grins. They are simultaneously gentle and alluring, a velvet blend of innocence and innuendo. Money and its relationship to sex prominently feature in these paintings where men tempt blushing girls with necklaces and coins in dark chambers, that only by flickering candles. Prostitution is the subtext of many of these pictures, and the tangled, complex psychology of money and sex are ubiquitous throughout his work. I should tell you something that was that I got that, and it talks about this chiaroscuro style. I got it from ChatGPT. Now, we know ChatGPT makes things up. That might not be true, but it's well written, isn't it? And of course, uh, w- one of the things that he says was, uh, is Lefano, Lefanu, of course, it was, it was an Irish Protestant. And Shalkin was associated with the with the court of King William, King Billy, and of the Orange Order. Well, of the of Orange, you know, and the Orange Order and all that thing. So whether that is relevant, I don't really see that. But you know, and clearly, and um, the orange and the green are very important themes in and divisive themes in Irish history. But we have to remember, it's a short story. I was reading. I'm just, I am nearly finished a book, a sh- very short book called The Encyclopedia of the Dead by. Uh, a Yugoslav author called Danilo Kish, who's also dead, and he, he, in his introduction he talks about, or it's it's talked about the difference between novels and short stories, and he wrote mainly short stories, and his, his point of view was, you can only get one idea across. Like a novel you can explore a lot of things, but in a short story, you're just making one point. Now, it would be, and we could extrapolate from this story, and we could talk about themes of this, that, and the other. I... I think it's a. I think he's a vampire, isn't he? The old uh, Van Vanderhausen. He's a vampire of some kind, but he wants to marry the dead. And in a sense, we just did um, Clarimonde by Théophile Gautier recently, uh, which is obviously a French story, but it's about also about the a dead person, a vampire, Clarimonde in this case, wanting to marry a living person. So. He he has, uh, you know, if, you, if you're if you an undead, I suppose you've, got, you've been around a bit, you, you've had some investments, your, your tracker shares have paid off because you bought them in 1602, and so therefore 200 years later, they're worth a lot of money. So you've got plenty of dough, and you can pay for somebody um, to marry you. I wouldn't do that. I think it's immoral uh, to p- pay somebody to marry you I'm kind of smiling at myself there. Just imagine. Anyway, I have never paid anybody to marry me, just so as you know. But um, okay, so yeah, so the, the but there, one is tempted to look deeply into these things, and the image of Rose and the picture of Rose. She is gone, but her picture remains. He, there's all sorts of things there. Um, she's a figure in white, even though it's a shroud. So she represents both purity and corruption at the same time, and her sh- and her white dress is um, dirty. Um, she doesn't appear the living rose when she escaped was terrified, but when she comes to see him later on, when he's gone to his father's funeral at Rotterdam, and he's just dozing off in the church, she doesn't appear to be completely unhappy, or she doesn't appear to be unhappy with the situation. What do we make of that? What do we make of that? That doesn't that doesn't make um, isn't consistent with the story because she was terrified and then why is she not terrified and you know so that kind of tempts us and that's a problem here it tempts us to to kind of analyze and go well, what's going on here because we're pattern f- forming creatures we see clouds we see shapes in the clouds so we get a story that actually has an has a, a inex- unexplained thing in it and we're like oh yeah what's that about really um, the living marrying the dead there's all sorts of deep themes that you could dig out, but remember, just because we can do it, doesn't mean certainly that the fan who meant it or that it's true. It might just be us thinking that those things and that. And you know, every I often uh, am pleased when people put their own um, understandings of stories on in the comment sections of when I've done it, and that some of them I think, whoa. Some of them I think, wow, I never thought of that, and oh yeah, that seems right. Or some of them might think, well, that's wacky. But but then people might think about mine, so, you know, there we are. We might also, because then I think if it was a Hollywood, it was made this into a into a made-for-television t- horror film, which I have seen but I've forgotten, uh, and it was very well liked. And in that, what they did was they made him fight more for Rose, because in this story, old Chalkin's like, you know, you're the love of my life, I love you forever. Oh, you're marrying somebody. So, oh, well, never mind you know, I'll just get on with my work. I'll still be your uncle's pal, and uh, we'll just crack on. But we would expect the modern people, we would expect, no, he's got to fight, he's got to fight for her. And then we would imagine if we were writing it for Hollywood, he would find the tomb, there would be some kind of Indiana Jones battle with the lich of, that is, van and he would come out and he would rescue uh, Rose. But it, that is not what happens uh, in this story, which in a sense... Um, well, you can either look at it and think it's a flawed story because that doesn't happen, or you can think, well, actually, it's a bit more interesting than the potted kind of stories that we would get that, that you know, I might write. Uh, Lefano doesn't do that. He actually, um, you know, and he's capable. He's a very accomplished writer, so there are reasons why he didn't do that. And, um, that, you know, the fact that I don't get them is uh, probably a tribute to the fact he's a, a cleverer man than me. When I'm doing these analyses I sometimes go and I try and run it through different lenses so, so, uh, to see if I can get anything out of it so uh, for this I said um, I went to old chat GPT let's look at the story from a semiotic point of view which is use of symbols and it says things and I'm not actually uh, don't necessarily it does make the point of when she comes back and she's escaped from Vanderhausen she's craving food and wine and that, that represents that feels something like when people come back from Fairyland and they're told not to eat, but the food don't eat the food in Fairyland, and once you if you come to Fairyland and you eat human food, you die, and uh, and so there's something it feels like there's something there, but I don't know what it is. She holds a lantern at the end. Is that an illumina- illumination? So we look and I asked from a Gnostic point of view, which I'm just having a bit of fun here. Then from a Freudian point of view, it does it does talk about uh, the uncanny because Freud was. Big on sexual and repressed desires. So the relationship between Schalken and Rose, their forbidden love and the interference of van der allude to the theme of sexual desire. Yeah, maybe. I'm not massively convincing. And then I go to my old man, Carl Gustav Jung, and uh, my, my man, my main man, my go-to psychoanalyst. And he, you know, he has these ideas of archetypes, which you may well know that what says are certain characters that that are, we're wired for... So there are certain characters in our unconscious. They appear in our dreams, they appear in artwork, they appear in films. We can't help but project them or we negotiate the world through. And we, one of the things is because we're, we're social creatures, our instincts personify nature. So we see nature and we see our life as a negotiation with personalities, you know, whether they're really personalities or not. But we, you know, we talk about the, the um, temperament of the sky or the sea uh, or of a boat or of a tree. We can't help but deal with other entities and even concepts as personalities because we're totally hardwired to do that. That's how we engage with the world. So some of the personalities that we see are the shadow, which is where we give all our evil off. Because as 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 um, group creatures... Well, and this is what I find in my work, you know, as a, as a psychiatric nurse, I find that... Um, most people's problems are due to, and I'm not, you know, I had a thought and I had another thought. Let's just have the first thought. So first of all, society needs to control our behavior. We cannot do what we want as group animals because then everybody suffers. Our behavior has to be useful for society. So how we control other individuals is that we put emotions in them and we control them through guilt and shame. And we use these things, guilt and shame. And because guilt and shame are so intolerable to us, we cannot bear them, we project out. If we feel that we've done something bad that is worthy of guilt and shame, we can't have it. So it goes out to somebody, I'm sorry, it's not me. It's not, um, you know, and the blood libel, of course, you know, some dark shadow of medieval Christianity was put out onto the Jews as, as you know, as a scapegoat, really. And the scapegoat is a good example of that, actually. Um, you know, they drank the blood of Christian children. And we, we're seeing a lot of that now with... This adrenochrome stuff, whereby um, the elites are supposed to harvest the organs uh, from and terrify children. This is a weird thing if you don't know about it. So that the body produces um, a thing called adrenochrome. And I think Aldous Huxley invented this in uh, Bra- either in Brave New World, it wasn't in Chrome Yellow, that's a nice book, you know, whereby that people would take this and it would keep them young. Think of Elizabeth Battery, the vampire. Hungarian princess who used to bathe in the blood of virgins. It had to be virgins. It's a symbolic thing, the virginity. It makes a virgin's blood is no different from a non-virgin's blood. But you know, symbolically it is, because it and it's a symbolic virtue. So it's the youth and the fear of the children. It's a vile, vile thing, but it is it is an archetypal. That's what I'm saying. These things crop up, crop up, crop up because they're archetypal. So we project our own horribleness that we can't bear. Because we can't own that shame and guilt and we give it to somebody else. It's not my fault, it's your fault. And it depends how, how uh, developed we are as people whereby we can tolerate our own um, badness and then kind of do something about it, I suppose. That's a, that's a responsible thing to do. But um, but I see many people who cannot tolerate it, so it goes out. We used to do family therapy and we'd sit in a, and the family would come in and they'd point to a, a small child and go, it's him. And the system of the family had... Um, Was thought itself pure and wonderful and put all the badness in the family system, blamed it on one person. And this is what you see time and time again. And this person has to carry the projected wickedness of everybody that they don't want to own. So you can have it, you know? And you see that all the time, all the time. And that is our shadow. What we put out is our shadow. What we hate most, what triggers us most, that is us that we have just chucked out that we can't. So whatever we're most uh, vilely frightened of, that's the thing we dislike most about ourselves, and we can't, um, uh, you know, in a nutshell. You know, don't take that for every case. As a great aphorism about the truth of humanity. It is broadly true, I think, uh, and in in most cases it is true. But, um, you know, I'm not saying, um, you know, I'm not giving you individual therapy here. So um Vanderhausen is the shadow of course he's the most vile 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 horrible horrible and of course all of the things we hate and fear are bundled up in him death predation um the corruption of money as well um the um lasciviousness the predatory nature he's, he's predating he's an old man predating a young woman you know sexually he is uh, the venality of um her uncle who's like well he uncle knows that you know i shouldn't do this but yeah the money's very tempting so okay he's beside himself and we have this double think as well don't we you know at the one time we can do something and be and and know it's bad and still do it and then be very worried about it you know so yeah oh dear what's happened to my well actually you sold it down the river pal so um you know don't don't pretend you're worried now primo levy has a thing like this in in um if this is a man which is uh, Primo Levi was an uh, Italian Jewish um, writer who survived the concentration camps. And he has a scene whereby um, it's a very hot day and they're bundling up uh, Jewish people into cattle trucks in the most inhuman way to send them off to their death. And it's very hot. And this German sh- soldier gets a drink of water for one of the Jewish children. And on, on, on a level, you would go, oh, okay, so you're not a complete monster. That isn't what Primo Levy says. Primo Levy says, you know, come on, you're complicit in this. You know, you, you, you are just salving your conscience. And in a sense, the uncle's just salving his conscience. He's sold his niece to this monster for money and he's salving his conscience by feeling bad about it. You know, it's easy, easy, easy to do that. And the same with Schalken himself, you know, what did Schalken do to save her? Absolutely zilch. So, and he um, pursued um, ambition. So therefore, there's an only, if you think of all, I think the only one who doesn't come out of it badly is maybe Rose. But everybody else is a bit of a scumbag, let me say. And um, and it all goes on Vanderhausen. They all managed to come out of it as being, yeah, we're not too bad because all our meanness and avarice and weakness and um, cowardliness and love of money, I've already said that, and love of power. We're all going to give that to Vanderhausen and he ends up being the bad guy, which I'm guessing he was. But, um, you know, so I think it's it's very useful in that point of view. And she, of course, so that's a Jungian thing, Vanderhausen is the shadow, is the, is the co- collective shadow of everybody else in the story. Uh, and, of course, uh, the other great um, archetype that we crop up, we find in our own psyches, is the anima for a man. I'm a man, so that's what I find. And it's the spirit of the female, the female within us. And, and, and women, of course, according to Jungian theory, have the animus, the, the, the male part of them inside them. So for a man, um, the, the anima has all sorts of qualities, but she, 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 in Jungian thought, is who leads us to our souls. She is our souls, in a way. So therefore, she is the vehicle for illumination. And so I would say that if this was a Jungian, a Jungian story, um, what you have to do, Schalken would have to do, would be assimilate his shadow, accept the wickedness in him and take it back from Vanderhausen, which he doesn't do, and also follow the illumination of his soul rose. And he does that in a, in a, in a failed way. He paints a picture of her and he, he follows her to her boudoir, her tomb boudoir, but he wakes up so he doesn't he doesn't continue to so i think it's a failed um individuation and he as many of us will fails to live up to the calling of our souls to um to actually you know incorporate all these things and become bigger than we are and add a little bit of consciousness and to the world to so light a candle in the darkness and uh, but some of us and maybe me too we prefer to sit in the dark and just ignore all these things. So it's really hard to confront these things in ourselves. So anyway, there you go. Uh, so so after saying all of that stuff at the beginning about, you know, come on, it's just a short story. It's just a horror story about a vampire. I've then gone on at length about how it's actually a massively symbolic story about, um, we could even say something about painting because, uh, if we if, because in most cases we prefer the map to the territory you know uh, we um we prefer the painting we prefer the movie to real life, and so rather than really live embody his love for Rose, which requires courage and sacrifice, he lets her go off and he paints a picture of her instead. I just edited it out but the doorbell went, so the dogs who've been asleep, I don't know if you heard Ruby snoring through some of that. She's a t- she's not a very big dog at all, but she's got a massively loud snore. Um, She's looking at me now because she knows I'm talking about it. I d- didn't mean it, Rubes. Oh, dear. I've upset her. Anyway, I'll give her a treat later. It'll be okay. So um, the doorbell was a, a man from Mark from a couple of doors up, and we take I'd taken a parcel in from him. He's telling me it's uh, veterinary things for his poor little cat, and I think that that's the 14-year-old. It's not, it's not Lucifer who's the black one. It's the um, tortoiseshell one. Uh, it's like I don't know if it is. It's like a light, a very fawn-colored tortoiseshell, but it's fourteen years old, and the poor old things, its kidneys are going. Oh, I had a, I had a cat that, and you know, old cats—that's what often happens, isn't it? The kidneys go, which is a terrible shame. Um, but uh, there, he says the diet's under control, and she's doing all right. So there we are. But the dogs were funny because when the doorbell went, they. Um, they're up like yeah we're yeah hey come on we're going to defend as if uh, it was somebody bad coming and then they they just lick him uh, but never mind anyway Shalkin the painter Joseph Sheridan Le we're now on an hour and eighty minutes I've probably talked on long enough what can I say oh yeah listen I uh, published my po- Poisoned Rose I'm plugging that at the moment it's a novella set in uh, a big house in Yorkshire about it's uh, all alchemical, blah, 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 mystery, blah, 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 supernatural. I don't know if I'm selling it to you there, though. Anyway, uh, you can get it. Um, Patreon has just allowed me to sell digital products, so I have put it up there. You don't have to be a, a patron to buy it either, uh, and I think it's on my Kofi store, or you can get it from Amazon if you don't mind Amazon. But just as a digital thing... Um, there is it is a, there is a possibility of printing uh, paperbacks but you know cuz they are books yes then th- you get all sorts of logistics and orders and i remember when i d- did print my own books um, there's a company called gardeners if you get it in with gardeners they take it around all the bookshops in in the uk and you you know you'll get it wherever and what you you know your local bookshop can get it uh, but they would they would send it back going oh no the the um, what do you call it the spine is scuffed not no, gone isn't so I'd send brand new boxes of books and they'd just reject them so I thought oh, this isn't worth it because I was paying postage both ways as a by the by not for my books really but for in general I've kind of um, taken on an affiliate thing with bookshop.org which supports indie bookshops which I feel healthier about because I do go and spend money and time in indie bookshops. And um, so this, you, you that you put an order through them and they source it through your local bookshop. So th- that seems a good thing to do. There's, there'll be a link somewhere for that one, okay, but not for my books. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what I might do. I'll put a link to Sharon Lafano's books. So hopefully we can support the indie bookshops that way. Okay. Probably that's about it. Um, it's raining. I don't know if you can hear that as well. It's been a very wet. I know certain parts of the world, like Southern Europe and uh, much of the um, U.S., have been boiling hot, but it's been cool and wet here. So not, I'm not making any kind of negative comment about political issues. I'm just making an observation, okay? Because, of course, as we know, people will people are really good at finding things to get upset about, and I don't mean anything. I'm just saying it's raining. That's it. That was where I began, and that's where I'll end. Okay, hope you're all well. Uh, don't forget, if you like me rambling, I've got Late Night Sleep. I've got a, another podcast called Late Night Sleep Radio, where I talk about um, folk customs and legends, and um, um, dogs are just starting to wrestle now. But there is, they're still pups, you know, so they, they do a bit of a loud wrestle. Um, I think Jasper's not really interested. He just wants to doze off, but Ruby's attacking him. So she's obviously got over her slight before when, about when I said about the snoring. Um, anyway, yes. Yeah, so late night sleep radio, I talk about legends, I talk about foraging, I talk about folklore um, and other things that occur to me. And the idea is, given that people fall asleep to my voice anyway, they're actually encouraged to fall asleep on late night sleep radio. So if you uh, search for it, you can find it on your podcast's But you can also find it on YouTube. If you go to the bottom of the Classic Ghost Stories page on YouTube, you'll find a link. But if you do Late Night Sleep Radio, I think it's the only thing called that, so you should find it. Okay, all right. Tune in. Turn on. Drop out. Is that... No, is that right? Anyway, I also need to say thank you again to all my patrons, all my supporters, everybody like that and to Jonathan Sharp of the Hartwood Institute for letting me use the music and I haven't forgotten about you Jonathan. Uh, and if if you ever listen to this and I I've got a, I'm working on a thing about a 1970s story about, about a village where there's mumming going on and um like horn dances and things. You need to look that up Albert Bromley it's people dancing with horns on their heads not anything else. Invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions, to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big on Patreon. There is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron you can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts and on youtube but if you want to become a patron you get the double whammy of supporting my work which enables me to do more work imagine that you pay me to do more and i do more work for you and produce more stories for you which is and, and you know i appreciate it so you get my love and gratitude and also you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.